Welcome back to Discourses. With me today is Sean McMeekin, a professor of European history at Bard College, the author of Stalin's War, A New History of World War II, and a contributor to Chronicles Magazine. Sean, how are you? <clears throat> uh, very good, Pedro. Thanks for uh, having me on. Yeah, always always good. We, we tried to do this before, but we had some technical issues. So unfortunately, uh, well, fortunately, we're, we're, we're doing it again. Uh, you're a refreshing voice on the scene right now. Um, you've got a great article out. You've got a great book out and a great article out. The articles in Chronicles, uh, it's called Putin, Russia and Ukraine, Historical Roots of a Tragedy. I'm glad you wrote this because uh, you have written for Chronicles before. Paul Gottfried reviewed your book. Stalin's War. Uh, it, it, Paul was uh, in love with your book. My, I haven't read it yet, but I read his review and I was really impressed by it. It, it really gets into the the uh, the lend-lease question. We'll just call it that. The, basically, the United States kind of enabling the Soviet Union to do a lot of bad things uh, with, with material support. Um, but now we're living through a really confusing time because Russia... Uh, is currently at war with Ukraine again. And there seems to be this kind of consensus that this is the Soviet Union uh, reemerging under Putin uh, and that Putin is bent on world domination, that we, we basically cannot take any of his claims about why he's doing what he's doing at face value. Uh, and to be clear, that's not to say that we're trying to excuse or justify what he's doing. Obviously, you know, this, this whole thing is a catastrophe. Uh, but but basically, no one actually wants to try to understand Russia um, as it understands itself. Even if those, even if that understanding is is incorrect, and as you point out in your article, Putin is right about some things and wrong about other things. And um, I mean, I, I was impressed by it because because precisely for that, it's kind of like you're you're weighing and measuring his claims. You're taking them at face value. You're trying to understand them. Uh, you 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 know you criticize him where where he's wrong. Um, but then you, you also acknowledge that, look, war doesn't happen in a vacuum and the West has basically been playing a dangerous game, uh, by using Ukraine as a proxy. Uh, and Ukraine also seems to have a history of being used as a, as a kind of proxy. And you talk a little bit about, um, about why Putin and a lot of Russian nationalists blame Lenin for tearing mother Russia apart. So we can, we can start wherever you'd like to start. Well, sure. I mean, first of all, I think the last time we spoke really was in some ways a kind of a different world when you could right. still talk about a book like this and just really talk about the book. And yes, some of the controversies about the book, but the immediate question was not what's going on in Ukraine, whereas obviously since February 21st or 24th, uh, basically, this is kind of all the world has been talking about. And of course, all anyone wanted to hear about from me. Um, and it is interesting that because of this book, where I do, as you point out, detail all of these Soviet crimes against humanity, atrocities, etc., that uh, the assumption, I think, of, of kind of editors and people who have been asking me to comment is that I am going to take this chest-thumping anti-Russian line. I'm, I'm kind of refuted to be a Russophobe, even though, of course, to me, criticizing communism and, and, uh, and Stalin's uh, foreign policy and, and Stalin's uh, atrocities against uh, civilians and kind of helpless uh, subjects of, of nations he conquered, etc. Um, this does not necessarily speak to me to the Russian character. I mean, obviously, it was Soviet Russia. I mean, this is a, a state. It's a part of the long history of Russia. You can't completely ignore the fact that it was 
Stalin was George and largely dominated by Russians, but I think we should all be able to disaggregate between the crimes of a, of a communist government and whatever it is that Putin's government is today. I mean, I think a lot of Americans, as you're pointing out, just kind of have this almost reflex, uh, almost it's part nostalgia, it's part, I think, almost an involuntary reflex, uh, particularly those of an older generation who just associate everything Russia does with the Cold War. Um, I'm not really sure about the younger people, whether they really remember the Cold War. I mean, to them, Putin is, if anything, probably an, an even greater villain than any of the Soviet leaders with which they're not even particularly familiar. Um, but so when people were asking me to try to explain some of these things, um, I think they were expecting a, a rather simplistic denunciation or maybe an analogy with, you know, Putin is either Hitler. Some some people want him to be Hitler, of course. Some people maybe uh, are expecting me to say that he's Stalin. He's, he's neither, obviously. I mean, he's Putin. And um, he, he is a student of history. I wouldn't say he's necessarily the most careful scholar of history, but he's obviously interested and he talks about it all the time. Um, he wrote a long article on what he called the historical unity of Russians and Ukrainians published on the Kremlin website back in July 2021. He's actually written commentaries on the Second World War. Um, his reading of 20th century history is obviously selective, and that's part of what I was talking about in, in the article you, you were referring to. That is, he does look back to the different ways in which Ukraine has been a, a proxy for outside powers. Um, Ukraine, for example, um, was what well, Lenin himself actually took up the cause, and that's f first of the first thing that actually brought him to the attention of the central powers when he took up the cause of Ukrainian autonomy. And it's not because he was particularly enthusiastic about Ukrainians as such. It's just because he was agitating really against the Tsarist Empire and trying to destroy it and bring it down. And that's the reason, of course, the Germans supported him and sent him back to, to Russia. They thought he would weaken the Russian imperial armies, maybe help broker a ceasefire and or a peace, which is more or less what Lenin did. And, and then Lenin did proceed effectively to kind of tear apart the Russian Empire. And that, that's part of the reason why, again, like most Russian nationalists or chauvinists today, even if they've, they've tried to rehabilitate the Stalin era, because they see Stalin as strong, as a kind of a conqueror, as a, a nation builder of sorts, even if a problematic one, Lenin really was kind of more of a destroyer, you know, who kind of tore down the Russian Empire. Um, and yes, you had Ukraine and the Russian Civil War first. The Germans use it as a kind of a lever to detach uh, Ukraine from Russia, break apart the Russian Empire. That's right at Brest-Litovsk. They actually signed a peace treaty with the Rada from Kiev. Um, you know, and then effectively try to install a kind of puppet government there. Uh, Poland uh, negotiates with uh, Petlura and this kind of Ukrainian nationalist faction and effectively in invades Ukraine by invitation in 1920. And that's really the kind of the, the proximate cause of, of the Soviet-Polish war, which is such a huge subject in the 20s and 30s for Stalin and other Soviet leaders. You know, there was a time they came close to winning, but then they ended up losing and having to allow Poland to conquer what had been Ukrainian territory. The borders were obviously contested all throughout the Second World War. Um, Ukraine then, obviously, when the Germans invade in 1941, becomes a really explosive subject, in part because there was some collaboration. And, um, you know, this is something that uh, Russians and Ukrainians, of course, continue to argue about, and they, they levy claims about collaborators and, and Bandera being, in some places in Ukraine, celebrated as a kind of national... Right era or denounced, of course, by the Russians and really by most people outside Ukraine as a as either a Nazi or a Nazi collaborator. And uh, th there's a obviously just really huge polemics around all of these subjects. And Putin is obviously treating them and understanding them selectively. Um, he reads from history 
what he wants to use. And this is not surprising. I mean, he's not a historian. He's a statesman. You know, he wants to to see in this history some type of justification for his own his own positions. Of course, going then to the, the end of the Cold War, Ukraine being involved in the dissolution of the Soviet Union, um, effectively what they call the Bill of Israel betrayal or the Minsk Accords, where allegedly Boris Yeltsin was kind of drunk on the couch when you know he signed this uh, decree dissolving the Soviet Union alongside um, Ukrainian leader, uh, we had Kravchuk, and then of course Shushkevich from Belarusia, three of the the original kind of founders of the Soviet Union. Um, so this has always been seen as vaguely illegitimate, I think, by by Russian nationalists, and Putin obviously kind of speaks for them. Um, I mean, Putin, of course, ignores, and that's one of the other things I try to point out. You know, the various ways in which all of the the horrors that Ukraine suffered in the 20th century helped to forge a kind of national identity. You know, not, not necessarily a a unitary one that everyone in Ukraine shares equally. Obviously, there are a lot of minority groups, many Russian speakers in Ukraine who don't necessarily see things the same way. But for for Ukrainians, obviously, all this history means that right. look, we suffer terribly. You know, we're a people, and there we're we're being denied our our rights as a people, our rights to determine our own destiny, our own future, and obviously, then the borders, having been to some extent guaranteed by Russia in the Budapest Memorandum of, of 1994, Ukrainians can obviously make the case that that. Um, whether it was 2014 or, or today, that the Russians, what they're doing is, of course, illegal, unlawful, aggression, etc. Uh, Putin obviously sees it differently. And, and, you know, I think it's important to tease out why and understand what it is that, that Putin and the Russians are up to, so simply so we can understand what, what might hopefully bring this, this catastrophe to an end. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's... You, you talk about how Putin makes mixed claims about the Soviet Union, um, for example, he, he's 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 condemned communism and, and he's obviously been critical of Lenin. But on the other hand, he'll say things like the collapse of the USSR was the greatest geopolitical tragedy of our time. And and then on the other hand, um, his his selection of of or he, he tends to actually invoke more the Tsarist history of Russia. Mm-hmm. But then when he does that, it's it's also it's it's even more selective. But I think Ukrainians do something kind of similar where. Uh, maybe the best way to put it is that it seems like Western Ukraine is actually where the the current nationalism comes from. Uh, that that it's being imposed on the rest of the country, basically from Kiev. Uh, and I mean, in 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 a sense, this is happening quite literally. Where uh, I think with actually the election of Zelensky, you started to have these kind of anti-Russian cultural laws, right? The suppression of the Russian language and things like that. And I mean, this is this is for outsiders, for outsiders who are paying attention, that stuff is kind of shocking. But on the other hand, that that's actually what it looks like when you're at, when you're trying to uh, concretize a national identity. So it, it's interesting. I think both sides overplay the claims that they want to overplay. Uh, yeah, and history is not static. I mean, that's right. the other thing. Um, you know, let's say Putin's view of of Ukraine, um, you know, problematic as it was, might have been more plausible, let's say, before 2014 and before this year. That is to say, in, in the course of the fighting, uh, which, of course, yeah. goes back 2014 in the Donbass, um, you know, the, the enmities are now becoming somewhat ossified. The identity is becoming stronger for many Ukrainians in the same way that a lot of Russians now presumably in places like Donbass, we don't hear a lot about them or from them, presumably their their own, of course, hatred for Ukrainians as oppressors is being reinforced in the same way Ukrainians are being reinforced in their own 
resentment and, and hatred of this kind of attempt by the Russians to to partition, carve out their country, or you know, obviously yeah. deny it. I mean, I, it, it's all there are no good outcomes at, at this stage. It's it's obviously a tragedy. I mean, it's a catastrophe what has happened and. And, you know, what I do say about Putin's claims about recent history, he is on firmer ground when you look at uh, the history of, of NATO expansion and to some extent uh, the U.S. and its NATO partners kind of taking on Ukraine as a cause and, and trying to westernize Ukraine and orient it to the West uh, immediately before the 2014 crisis or back in the Orange Revolution of 2004. I mean, the Russians obviously saw all this as kind of this provocation, manipulation, the the kind of soft coups that the CIA and the State Department tended to practice that they called color revolutions. And here's the thing is the Russians obviously had a point about all of this. However, in the in the very course of these conflicts developing and being contested, the identities do tend to get hardened. Um, and, and yeah, Ukrainians, obviously, they have their own, as you're pointing out, kind of selective version of deep history and saying, look, we were we were kind of the original Eastern Slavs before the Russians. You look at Kiev and Rus and, you know, they tweet out these pictures of Kiev when, you know, Moscow was still just forest and all this. Right. <laughs> we have like a deeper and older history. Or, <laughs> yeah. Um, and, you know, there is there's a real pride. I mean, you look at Ukrainians as a people. I mean, um, obviously, some of this is mythology, but descended from some of the, the yeah. Cossack hosts or, um, you know, from peoples from, you know, lands which used to be uh, not part of Russia, but maybe a bit more what we might call kind of slightly more European, um, you know, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, Kiev and Rus, uh, slightly more of an orientation in the direction of the West, the church obviously being somewhat different. Um, yeah. the West you go, you're talking about ex-Hapsburg regions where, you know, they would see Russia as kind of this benighted backward place. And, you know, they obviously wouldn't want to, the same way that, let's say, the Baltic states, um, to them, you know, joining NATO or, or the European Union is like joining this club of more advanced civilized countries. That's probably the way they see it, you know, whereas Russia is seen as kind of this, you know, back, there's, there's obviously, there's some condescension. The Russians are kind of this, this backward peasant race or something, you know, that is, I think the feelings are genuine, you know, I think the antipathy yeah. is genuine. That is to say, this is a real, it's a real war. It's unfortunately the, I think the, the resentments and the hatreds have deepened and, and yeah. that's one of the reasons why it's such a tragedy and why I really wish that the position of, of this country and its government had been both to try to prevent this from happening and also to try to bring an end to the hostilities however possible. Yeah, yeah. I think all, I mean, to a certain extent, all, let's call it deep history is actually part myth. And I think that's that's why I think I've been focusing so much more on, on uh, the contemporary, on what's been happening basically since the fall of the Soviet Union, because that to me has really made... All of this inevitable and i mean i i have to remind myself that i haven't actually talked about this too much in interviews i've certainly tweeted about it a lot uh and i've written about it a few times but i just it like drives me mad to to think about how there are all these warning signs on on the way here uh that were ignored and and not you know not just by fringe characters like you know george kennan 1998 warns that 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 Russia uh, that that we were turning our backs on the people who led the greatest bloodless revolution of the 20th century when we were deciding to basically uh, make the Russians our enemy once again after the fall of the Soviet Union that that we were basically making a crisis inevitable with Russia by insisting on on making them our enemy. I mean, this is George Kennan. This is, you know, right. I think it's important to talk about this 
uh, because today the Kennan position is a fringe position. Right. Because Kennan was saying, we are antagonizing this country needlessly and it's going to it's going to end badly and it's going to be a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy and then you know in 2006 you have alexander solzhenitsyn who's saying the same thing he actually specifically says nato expanders uh, are, are creating a crisis and that he he had very prescient he, he actually warned that uh that color revolutions will create a kind of flashpoint uh, between the West and Russia, that the the West's insistence on using color revolutions uh, in Russia's backyard will at some point uh, make a crisis happen. And but again, all of these, you know, Solzhenitsyn, Kennan, today these people would be uh, fringe, uh, or they wouldn't get published in the Economist or wherever uh, because their their positions are totally unacceptable. But it's it's there's been a total memory holding of, of yeah. all of these warnings, you know, and, and, you know, I asked a professor, I won't say who, but I asked a professor, why is it that between 1999 and 2004, NATO was able to integrate Poland, the Czech Republic, Romania, and the Baltic States, and Russia basically just kind of, you know, ex- allowed it to happen uh, without, without much protest. And his answer, of course, was, well, because they were too weak to fight us. I was like, well, it's because the line for Russia always seems to have been drawn at Georgia and Ukraine. Yeah. That that seems to have always have been the kind of Russian Monroe doctrine, um, but we 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 openly challenged that. You know, like we, we really believed that in the unipolar, unipolar moment, we have the right to basically drive right up to the Kremlin and and park our rockets, and they can't really say anything about it because that's that's just the way things work these days. And that that mentality still persists. It's actually worse now. Like you think that with what's happening now, with the amount of the amount of life lost and the amount of destruction, there would be a kind of uh, reevaluation of the things that we did that that made this, that uh, we contributed by we, I mean the West contributed to this crisis, but no, it's, it's, we've actually doubled down. Like Western elites have become more insane. Uh, we've got open talk about, you know, kind of uh, like the worst version of Morgan Taoism. I don't know how else to describe it. We're not even, the United States is not even directly involved yet. And we're already talking about what are we going to do with the civilian population of Russia? It's, yeah. it's insane. Yeah, the, the level of, of hubris really is kind of astonishing. I mean, it was one thing 20 years ago, or you might say, let's say 1950, when the U.S. was kind of, it was, wasn't was unipolar in 1950, but just in terms of wealth and kind of the, the share of global uh, GDP and, and the, the general weight in the world of the United States, or even let's say in the millennium where it wasn't quite as large in economic terms, but kind of U.S. military power was unparalleled. No, those years you're focusing in on are huge, 99 to 2004, not just because of those uh, decisive rounds of NATO expansion and the second round actually bringing uh, NATO, of course, into the Baltics and effectively even surrounding uh, Kaliningrad as a kind of flashpoint in between Poland and Lithuania. Because if you actually look at Russia in that period, and, and curiously enough, that's actually uh, the years when I spent the most time in Russia was actually between about um, 1999 and, and 2004. And so I remember it viscerally. I was there during the Kosovo War. I mean, 99 is really one, particularly after the financial crash, the default of 98, when, when Russia bottomed out in a lot of ways, uh, both in terms of, again, the kind of the raw economic numbers, um, in terms of the currency collapsing once again after already collapsing in the earlier 1990s, thus, you know, kind of after all the pensioners lost their life savings in the early 90s, then the middle class was destroyed in the 1998 crash. Um, you can see it in things like the birth rate, which bottoms out in 19. 1999 at about 1.17 
children per, per woman, um, every single possible social indicator, alcoholism, uh, drug abuse, drug addiction, accidental deaths, deaths over birth, everything is bottoming out in Russia. You know, and this is a large part of, of course, how the Putin phenomenon happens, uh, when, you know, the specifics of the, the storm in Moscow and the debates over the, the kind of the immediate background of Putin's ascension to power. But that is to say the Putin phenomenon occurs against this backdrop of, of Russia absolutely bottoming out. You know, you have 2,000. Uh, the Kursk submarine going down, you've got the, the fire at the Ostend Kino television station, just humiliation upon humiliation yeah. after the debacle in, in Chechnya. Um, and so the Russians are at their kind of their weakest, most vulnerable, most humiliated moment when NATO makes these moves. And then they kind of uh, lustily celebrate this at this, this grandiose gargantuan NATO summit right after the Iraq war which was obviously just like the Kosovo war. The, the Bucharest summit in 2008. Yeah. So, right? uh, well, no, no, no. This is Istanbul 2004. So um, oh, okay. before Bucharest. No, 2008 was the decisive one as far as you're talking about Georgia and Ukraine. But I'm, I'm actually yeah. talking about just almost like the political moment. So, you know, after the U.S. had fought both the Kosovo immediately war after and the Iraq war. Russia, oh, okay. And immediately after the Iraq war, there's a big NATO summit in Istanbul. And I actually happened right. to be there, too. So I even remember that. They shut down half the city. And, you know, this is to celebrate effectively NATO kind of punching into what had been the Soviet Union in the case of the three Baltic states. And, mm-hmm. and you know, the, this question about why, why didn't Russia do anything? Well, yeah, I, I guess in the literal sense, true, the, you know, the kind of the red line, however we want to define it, would have been right, Georgia and Ukraine, and they hadn't quite gone that far yet. But it was also that, you know, that, that Russia was weak. By 2008, you talk about then the Bucharest summit, talk about Georgia and Ukraine possibly joining NATO. Uh, prior to the Georgian Russian or Russian Georgian conflict of August uh, 2008. By then, Russia had begun to recover. And so it wasn't just about this final provocation and the kind of the red lines, but that the Russians were starting to feel their oats again, you know, with uh, the galloping oil price, with economic recovery, you know, all those kind of social indicators, the birth rate yeah. had bottomed out, you know, Russians were once again to some extent seeing a possible future for themselves, having children again, you know, rates of alcoholism finally began to sort of uh, to rise, demography, you know, there were projections back around the millennium that Russia's population was going to drop down to 125 million by about now, basically. Instead, it's at least before the war, it's back up to about 147 million. That is to say, you know, Russia really did bottom out and then she began to rise again. And yeah, this question about why the the thing is the hubris, again, I I think it was a mistake in 99, 2000, 2003, 94, the U.S. made all kinds of mistakes. You can kind of understand, though, that is the U.S. really did feel that its power was unquestioned, that it had the ability to shape world events now, I mean, the fact that Americans still think they can do this today, you know, after after 20 years of industrial decline, the hollowing out of the manufacturing base and some of those social indicators we have now. Right. I mean, with things like uh, drug addiction and, and the opioid crisis and right. declining right. birth rate and you know, morale. I mean, it, it, obviously, again, things are not as bad as they were in Russia in 1999. But I mean, as far as being in a position to feel like you're you're strong and vigorous and able to dictate your will around the world. It's, it's just amazing that so many Americans kind of still think that this is a unipolar moment when so obviously yeah. it's so patently not. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, on the one hand, I guess the sanctions are illustrative of this because th- they haven't worked on the Russians. Like, big surprise, the Russians rallied under siege. The, the, the sanctions that have been imposed on Russia uh, by the United States and other Western countries by every available metric, they have unified 
Russian society in general <clears throat> with Putin and also unify the Russian elite. Whereas the, you know, there are all these competing clans uh, in Russia, uh, all these competing elites. Well, the sanctions have actually had the effect of, of eliminating for now those, those uh, competitions. And so now all of Russian society or the, the great majority of Russian society is united with, with Putin. So it seems like, okay, well, that's not a surprise because on the one hand, the Russian character, and on the other hand, the virtually unbroken record of sanctions failure uh, for all over the world, right? But Mark Milley um, recently said, I think before, the, uh, before a committee, that the sanctions were never intended to deter Russian aggression. They were just, the, the point of them was to actually just increase the cost of Russia going to war. So there's this again. There's another indicator that we 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 didn't actually intend to stop this from happening. Mm-hmm. But we just wanted to make it more likely that if Russia did it, I mean, and again, this is all happening in the context of Biden kind of you know letting the cat out of the bag and and saying like we Putin cannot remain in power. And then before that, you had Kamala Harris in, in February fifteenth, uh, who I mean, people made fun of her when when she referred to NATO as a, or a Ukraine as a uh, as a NATO member. But it's just like no, th- th- I think this is actually just how people in Washington think. Mm-hmm. Um, and then well, yeah, they, they, and they think it's going to work. I mean, they, right. it was amazing the way they were talking about this. They're almost bragging about the sanctions and talking about how somehow they were going to either turn the oligarchs against Putin or, uh, you know, ratchet up the pain to such a level that, that again, that the, the Putin government wouldn't be able to survive. It was this open talk of why won't someone rise up like a Brutus? I think that was Lindsey Graham, you know, in a <laughs> I mean, it's yes. amazing. It's not just hubris. I mean, it's just, it's pure illiteracy, historical yes. and cultural illiteracy. No, it's that's not right. that sanctions have never worked. But then in the case of Russia, they particularly sanctions, which are almost designed to kind of inflict maximum pain on ordinary Russians. And even yes. boasting, yeah. I mean, they're boasting about, you know, we have, we have, uh, what, what is it, collapsed, destroyed, whatever the phrase was, the ruble, which turns out, first of all, not to be true. And second right. of all, if it had been true and they had made ordinary Russians suffer brutally, why would that make them turn against Putin rather than against the Western countries, which are inflicting right. that pain on yeah. them? They don't know who's doing this. And and we can obviously see this immediately in the numbers where, again, we can't necessarily tr- trust all the opinion polls as, as 100% accurate. But the trend line is clear. Putin's numbers yeah. are rising. Yeah. I mean, actually going straight up. And it's not hard to see why. I mean, effectively, rather than turning the Russian people against Putin, our declaration of economic Armageddon of kind of DEFCON 2, we will bring Russia to its knees, has had the effect of unifying the Russian people against us. And this obviously could have been predicted by anyone just with an iota of common sense and uh, in understanding or reading of, of history yeah. of no, Russian it, culture. It was eminently predictable. There's, there's independent polling that shows this. There's all this anecdotal evidence that shows this. Like it's, it's just, it, at this point, it's indisputable. The sanctions have backfired, but that's if they were actually intended to, to deter Russian aggression, which Millie is suggesting that they weren't in the first place, or at least some people in D.C. Uh, never intended the sanctions to actually uh, deter Russia from engaging in war. It was just, as, again, basically what I'm getting at is that the goal was never to avoid a crisis. It was to affect regime change in Russia with or without a war. And, well, no, I think that's right. Yeah. You, you could see this as early as uh, I think it was the day after uh, the 
the invasion. I think it was uh, February 25th. Uh, this piece came out in Foreign Affairs by Douglas London, the coming Ukrainian insurgency. It was amazing. The day after the war began, they're already talking, <laughs> they're talking about turning Ukraine basically into Afghanistan, and they're openly boasting about how right. they, they right. kind of turned Iraq and Afghanistan into rubble. And it's kind of like, oh, so the goal is to help Ukraine yes. by turning Ukraine into a blood-soaked wasteland. Right. To maximize civilian casualties. Maximize civilian casualties to bleed Russia dry. And in the end, I guess they want to replicate the fall of the Soviet Union or something. Um, and, you know, I, I would have thought that, you know, despite I think probably most Americans agreeing that the end of the Soviet Union was a good thing, worth worth paying a high price for, that there was some blowback and some unintended consequences, to put it mildly, from our intervention in Afghanistan in the 1980s, and that we might have learned that even <laughs> if you do achieve your objective, there are these downstream consequences. You should perhaps right. be concerned about, which might, for example, have led to the rise of Al Qaeda and uh, eventually 11. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so well, you I'm might think big. that Go maybe. Ahead, should think twice about uh, you know and, and and not least the fact that obviously history is never going to repeat itself exactly that ukraine is not afghanistan and in fact uh there's there's every likelihood that that ukrainians will, will actually probably cohere and and fight you know kind of uh, in a more you might say kind of organized european fashion than uh, some of the various fighters in Afghanistan, or that let's say, just like in Afghanistan, it was only the, the religious zealots who were truly motivated to fight, as we've seen recently in Afghanistan. Right. It's probably going to be the most extreme nationalist elements in Ukraine that will come to the fore. And so we'll probably feed also kind of Ukrainian political extremism of some kind and, and yeah. deepen the hatreds and the enmities and and basically lead to an all-around horrific outcome for just about everyone. And and they're they're more or less saying this is what we want to do. Yes. I mean, no, I was gonna say Zelensky. Zelensky has already said that basically. I think in the last two days or so he suggested that that the future of Ukraine will be he said not Western, but illiberal, like a, a big illiberal security state is is basically what he said. Uh, which is convenient for people like him. I mean, the, the funny well, thing is... if that's what he wants, he'll probably get it the longer right. the war goes on. You know, just like he, he, Putin is obviously using yeah. the war to crack down on opposition media and kind of uh, cement his own authoritarian, whatever one wants to call it, quasi-cum-dictatorship. Uh, obviously, there are going to be people on both sides who do profit and benefit from a prolonged insurgency, just like obviously there are in, in Washington, both because it allows them to grandstand and presumably it's good for, for the arms business and, you know, for all these people in these think tanks, you know, whose sinecures are funded by the arms business. The, the problem with, with any war is that, of course, there are always people who are profiting from it and who want it to go on. And it's the ordinary people kind of caught in the crossfire who were desperate for the thing to end. I mean, what, what is the number now? We have something like 10 million displaced people already and it's been what, something not, like that not yeah. quite two months i mean i don't know what the, the real number is i know that poland's been flooded hungary's been flooded all neighboring countries have been flooded with yeah. with refugees this is obviously not good news i mean it's not good news for anyone um it's terrible news it's terrible news for ukrainians i mean it's it's destabilizing for ukraine's neighbors um it's a humanitarian catastrophe economically the downstream consequences we've only barely begun to reckon with with the cutting off of ukraine's ports and things like wheat and grain exports and potash and fertilizer and a lot a lot of it is it's not even like it's secret the russians basically said we're banning fertilizer exports yeah uh, a number of countries that are dependent on Russian and Ukrainian wheat and grain exports have, have themselves said, you know, we're now going to harden ration supplies. And 
Yeah. Uh, what was it? Germany. There was a report that, that the main, I think, uh, retailers were, were going to jack up food prices. Aldi. By 25 I think Aldi was a big one. Yeah, Aldi. I mean, some of some of the big retailers. I mean, the the quant the the downstream economic consequences are already horrifying, and they're only just starting. I mean, you know, we haven't even gotten to the harvest yet. Um, they're horrifying, and incredibly, they're being, as far as I can see, the the media has done a really good job of of diminishing the connection between the rising costs of food and fuel and the war in Ukraine. Um, basically. So far, a lot of people either don't know or don't mind that are the Western reaction to this war, uh, sanctions and things like that, and, and act actively undermining the peace process, which is what we're doing, uh, that those things are making the lives of millions of people harder in the West to say nothing of people outside the West. I mean, you're going to see probably things that look like famine uh, in, in non-Western countries, uh, but still incredibly like the the media apparatus has done a great job of, of convincing people on the one hand uh it's these two things are not connected and on the other hand it's worth it you know eight dollars uh for a gallon of gas in california is worth it and, and it, incredibly like you're starting to see people that are actually you know like there was that whole meme of uh people were putting stickers at, at gas pumps saying like uh i did that and it's joe biden pointing at the number Right. People are starting to do that with Putin in the mm -hmm. United States. They're starting to say, you know, Putin is why you're paying. It's like, no, no, it's not. It's actually because, I mean, yeah, Putin invaded Ukraine. Certainly that's that's true. But if, if, if you look at what the West is doing, it is it is difficult to come away with any other conclusion that we actually want a protracted conflict. Uh, we were actively undermining the peace process. Zelensky has has. I, He's such a strange character. He's actually, he, he suggested recently, or not suggested, but he said recently uh, in an interview with CNN that when I asked NATO for an answer on membership, this is the big thing that would help actually, you know, bring the war to an end is, is establishing this. Uh, when he asked NATO for an answer on Ukraine's NATO membership, um, he was told publicly the door remains open, but privately the answer is no. In other words, we, we have to publicly continue kind of telling people that like we, we the war has to continue uh, and like, you know, because at, at some stage, the possibility of Ukraine's entry into NATO could be a reality. But in private, Zelensky was told it's yeah, it's off the table. Well, yeah, that, that's precisely backwards, of course. I mean, had we gone back to December when negotiations were still underway, had we instead, I suppose we could have... Um, privately said well maybe someday it's possible but publicly disavowed any possibility of ukraine yeah. joining nato then yeah. perhaps this catastrophe i mean perhaps obviously one has no idea how history plays out in these counterfactuals um it's entire or yeah i think you'd have to go back further i mean had this been ruled out in 2007 and 2008 2012 2014 2017 whenever that obviously things would not have come to this to this critical pass um but yeah, as to what Americans get out of this, right, that it's supposed to be worth it, you know, whatever it is, $7 gas, $8 gas, skyrocketing grocery prices and all the rest of it. Um, I mean, obviously, inflation was already running pretty high before the war, but we, I think we can all agree it's it's getting much worse now. And so then, right, the, the question becomes then, is it worth it? But is it worth it for what exactly? I mean, like, what is the aim? Is the aim to... Uh, again, we talk about regime change. Maybe that's the maximalist aim. Somehow Putin falls. Or is it that they want to expel all Russian troops, 
Do they want to go back to the status quo ante positions of, of February? Do they want to go back to the status quo before 2014? Uh, do they want Ukraine and the EU and NATO? I'm not sure, but it, it, that is like, what is the objective for which we are supposed to be sacrificing all of this? In practice, of course, we seem to be sacrificing all of it in order to prolong the war and to help Ukraine turn into rubble and to help Putin's uh, approval ratings skyrocket even further. Um, I mean, one of the things that I do both in, in the article you were talking about, I mean, one of the articles, the the one in the American mind, but also uh, in the book Stalin's War, which, which I mean, obviously I'm drawing on, on Stalin's War in the article, is to talk about the history of these types of interventions. That is, is it worth it? Uh, one famous example, of course, is Poland itself in 1939. Poland becomes the cause. It's worth it because... Uh, you know, Britain and France, and I suppose in particular Britain, they, they get the war with Nazi Germany that to some extent, you know, they needed a, a good casus belli. And by then, I think even Chamberlain was committed to the idea that they had to stop Hitler. Okay, fine. How does it work out for Poland, right? So so Poland gets obliterated in, in a joint dual invasion and then spends right. the next six years, uh, you know, bleeding and dying. And, you know, you get deportations and death camps. Yeah. Warsaw is reduced to rubble, its population, you know, reduced from 1.3, 1.4 million to something like 150,000 by the end of the war. An example I didn't actually talk about in, in, in the article, but which is in the book, is actually what happens to Yugoslavia. Another example of this. So, you know, this is a, it's a long pattern of American behavior. So basically, we have this kind of envoy from Roosevelt, Wild Bill Donovan, this, this pugnacious Irishman who, for peculiar reasons, turns out to be kind of an Anglophile. Um, but so he's sent to the Balkans and uh, effectively by then he's working for both Churchill and Roosevelt. It's the British who were kind of paying his expenses and sending him around. And, you know, he goes in and and I mean, this astonishing parallel when you look at it this way. So he, he talks to Simovic, um, um, you know, who's a uh, I forget the exact rank general in the in the Air Force of, of uh, the Yugoslav Armed Forces. And and they basically promise him that, uh, you know, the U.S. and Britain will back him so long as they don't sign an agreement with Nazi Germany. Oh, like NATO in Ukraine, right? You know, you can't you can't sign on to basically the axis of the tripartite pact. Um, if you do, you know, you'll be kind of selling out your country in its future. Um, but of course, Yugoslavia was almost surrounded by German troops at the time. And so they have to kind of weigh this, you know, this and that. And and you, you get this great quote from Prince Regent Paul, you know, he says like, you know, you big countries are hard. You talk of our honor, but you are far away. And so, of course, what does happen? Well, they do sign into the axis. And then immediately there's this kind of soft coup. And all the actions at the U.S. Embassy, and they're all celebrating. And, and, you know, it's remarkable that the very guy that Donovan picked out as the leader of the coup, Simovich, takes over as, as premier. Um, you know, you have these, these eerie parallels with 2014 with uh, Victoria Nuland, um, you know, talking about, uh, you know, Yats is the guy, Yatsenyuk. Uh, and amazingly, I, I actually checked the dates on this because I was curious when I was looking at the piece that, that she this recording, which was I don't know if it was the FSB or Russian intelligence, whatever, but you know they leaked it. It's, it's on YouTube. I last I checked, it's still there. I don't know if they've taken it down yet. This was released to the public before the Euromaidan revolution and coup. That is to say, the public had already been informed that the U.S. had a handpicked candidate for Ukraine's new government before the revolution, coup, whatever we call it, that brings to power that very person. Um, you know, so whether it's, again, Britain and France with Poland in 39, the U.S. with uh, the U.S. and Britain with Yugoslavia in, in 1941, this is in, uh, March 1941 when the coup happens, or of course Ukraine 2014, we have a long pattern of this type of thing. And I, I guess I kind of understand the appeal. I mean, it, it allows these kind of intriguers to, you know, to kind of have their fun. 
Um, obviously, the, the politicians, they get to grandstand, they get to speechify. Uh, both Roosevelt and Churchill, this is in March 31, you know, 41, sorry, March 41, they immediately embrace this coup as this beacon of light and this triumph for democracy. And, and what does it lead to? Well, Nazi Germany invades a couple of weeks later and, and of course, starts bludgeoning Yugoslavia into submission. They literally call it Strathgericht, retaliation. Um, which wouldn't really, if you translated it back into Russian, that, that really would not be a bad name for probably yeah. Putin's operation. Yeah. Now, I mean, maybe there was a pretense at the beginning that there, Putin hoped that Ukraine would fall and you'd have a friendly government, but I, I don't think there, there are any really rosy outcomes for Russia now either. That is to say, yeah. it's it's just ugly, basically. It's just yeah. ugly. It's just this terrible war that, that I just think everyone has to try to bring to an end as soon as possible. No, that's right. And it's, it's precisely because it's so terrible that it's frustrating that there's no, no desire to reflect on how did we get here? Um, because the, the point that I've been making is that, like, look, even if, if Russia were to miraculously collapse and Moscow's armies were to disintegrate, um, we've actually only uh, cured a We've only dealt with the symptom, right? Like this war, this invasion is a symptom of, of something uh, beneath the surface and that something uh, it, it's not, it, it hasn't been dealt with. It hasn't even been really confronted um, because we refuse, we refuse to even ask that question. Did the West do something to make this crisis inevitable? That question now is just unacceptable. Um, the Economist <clears throat> yesterday published an article that it was it was directly rebuking John Mearsheimer, saying that he's totally wrong. Like his his argument that we that by we I mean you know Washington D.C. Western liberal inter internationalists made this inevitable, uh, in particular by insisting on NATO expansion. That is just totally absurd, totally baseless, possibly even subversive. I mean John, John Mearsheimer is, is is the leading you know realist geopolitical thinker. And when he is now being condemned uh, and basically told like you're you're uh, you're you're beyond the pale with what you're suggesting, that is a really bad place to be. And th that's actually why I think that again, even if uh, on the off chance Russia Russia just completely collapses, uh, I I'm not going to feel actually good about that <laughs> in the in the sense that like all of the insane people that that put us on this collision course and are you know, happy to turn Ukraine into a bloody insurgency, they're actually going to emerge from this stronger and more untouchable. That well, is it's perverse. I guess no, no one likes uh, a prophet who is actually right. I mean, this isn't the case of you were talking earlier about somebody like Kennan back in the 90s or, or Mearsheimer. I mean, obviously, there's a long unfolding tragedy. And I think already, let's say back December 2021, or even if you go back a few years previously, maybe it was already too late to stave off some version of this this particular uh, catastrophe, perhaps not in the exact form that it took. But it was a colossal missed opportunity. That is, Russia in the 90s, uh, the former Soviet Union, sure, there were problems that had to be dealt with regarding the nuclear arsenal, securing the nukes. One understands a lot of what the U.S. was up to in the Budapest Memorandum. Perhaps you could say it was something to be said for this for you know, both disarming Ukraine and trying to get the Russians to sign on to her borders. These were not easy problems to solve. But the larger problem of how do you simply relate to Russia, what kind of relations do you want to have with this country? Um, generosity, magnanimity, um, 
negotiation. I mean, the, the, the initial promise, the one that, that Putin tried to remind everyone about, the idea of not one inch to the east, that right. other versions of the remark, James Baker, originally, I believe, in, in February of, of 1990, when they were still discussing the matter of German unification after the fall of the Berlin Wall, and yeah. the Russians were kind of basically trying to be assured, look, if we go along with this, we're already withdrawing our troops basically from all the Warsaw, Warsaw Pact countries. I mean, effectively, if the Warsaw Pact ceased to exist, NATO should have, I don't know, ceased to exist at the very least. Um, its strategic purpose was, was no more. Um, and, you know, so so when, when he was still a candidate, uh, you know, Trump, I think it was in 2016, and this is part of what got him into hot water with everyone, where they started talking about Trump as, you know, Putin's poodle or a Russian agent and all this kind of Russiagate hysteria. Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, part of what made Trump interesting politically was he would simply voice the questions out loud, sometimes recklessly, that you were no longer allowed even to ask. For example, why did NATO still exist? Um, yeah. 70 years after the end of the Second World War. You know, if the original purpose was, um, when the British comment was, what, to keep the Americans in, the Germans down, and the Russians out. Yeah, right. Okay, right. so that was the original purpose. It, it achieved its objective. So the Soviet yeah. Union was no more. The Warsaw Pact ceased to exist. So what does NATO then become? Uh, maybe it's a club for democracies. And when that's the case, then just make a club for democracies. You know, maybe right. it's a, a proxy for the European Union, a little bit easier to join. You know, maybe you don't have quite the same political strictures with the kind of Copenhagen criteria and so on. So maybe it's a soft version of the EU. So fine. So call it that. You, you come up with a new name for the thing. Instead, um, I mean, the, the lot you're always hearing, well, NATO is a voluntary defensive alliance and any country can join. Well, Putin right. apparently asked whether Russia could join, you know, and, and he was pretty much told no, you know, which, right. which kind of gives the game away. That right. it still is an anti-Russian military alliance, whatever they claim yeah. that it is and is not. I'll, I mean, you know, the thing is, everyone knows this is true. I mean, this is why the Baltic countries wanted to join. You can't blame them. I mean, you know, if if if, if I were a foreign minister or prime minister of Latvia, Estonia, of course I would want to join NATO. I mean, look, if you get security against Russia and the Article 5, some type of guaranteed American nuclear, but why wouldn't you want to join? Uh, yeah. If you were Georgia, why wouldn't you want to join? You can't blame them for wanting to join. The mistake, of course, is in the vision of U.S. policy, particularly I mean, again, if, if you want to get into kind of geopolitics and 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 some of the, the realist thinkers, you talk about Mearsheimer, we talk about Kissinger equally or Kennan. You yeah. look at geopolitics after the end of the Cold War, and maybe it wasn't immediately obvious in the 90s, but it certainly was obvious by the millennium, by the turn of the century, that Russia was not a peer competitor and, and China was increasingly becoming one. So, right. um, I think maybe Kissinger probably understood this better than anyone, because, of course, the whole idea of triangulating and opening up China was as a lever against Russia. That was back in the early 70s. So why not triangulate and try to open up and befriend Russia as a lever against China? I mean, after all, Russia has always been a little bit conflicted, East versus West, Europe versus Asia, and so on and so forth. What is Russia's identity? Well, why not give Russia incentive to see herself as part of the West? You know, why not try to be more magnanimous, more generous? You know, to some extent, the Germans were, were trying to do this. I mean, they, they get a lot of bad press for it. And yes, there was corruption and Schroeder took a post on the board of, I, I don't, I think it was initially Gazprom, but eventually Gazprom yeah. kind of dumping ground for corrupt German politicians. And okay, it's sorted and maybe short-sighted for, for Germany to make herself so dependent on Russian oil and gas. But 
On the other hand, why not integrate with with Russia? And you know, here's the other the other area in which I think the U.S. really does bear a lot of blame. And part of the reason why, to the extent I think there's any impetus towards negotiation, it's coming more from Europe than from us. And that's because they're closer to Russia. Yes, they trade yes. more with Russia than we do. Yes. We don't really even trade very much with Russia. I mean, frankly, what what exactly is the quarrel between the United States and Russia? Um, right. Okay, now I suppose it's Ukraine. But you know, what, what is the larger quarrel? Are Before we this, fighting yeah. a I don't know, maybe, maybe like arms markets, you know, we're trying to sell to the same third world kleptocracies, our arms or something. But, you know, we, we, we don't share a border. We're not, we're not really trading partners or rivals. Yeah. You know, they're not a peer competitor. You know, if, if you try to view all these things objectively, um, you should say, well, look, I mean, Russia is kind of a big, important, well-armed country. We don't really have any serious conflicts with with russia except for the one we, we kind of tend to right. create or right. and the russians obviously they go along with it i mean if we want to treat them as an enemy they're going to treat us as an enemy it's, it's yeah that, i mean that's that's probably common uh, by, by the way how much are you good for time i i think i'm okay for for a few more minutes okay. yeah okay sounds good um no i think that that's that is actually another aspect of this that is Pretty terrifying because our our policymakers they they've been wrong about sanctions. Um, they've been wrong about so many how how so many different things would play out. And Russia, on the other hand, I think it seems pretty clear to me that they view this as an existential conflict. And they're also a country that has invested a lot in the development of tactical nuclear weapons that are designed for smaller strikes that are not you know. We're not talking about like Armageddon scale destruction, but basically it makes sense to me that if Russia feels that it is directly threatened by NATO, it will use tactical nuclear weapons, which it has more of in Europe than the United States. And it increasingly, it seems like we don't take that seriously. You're, you're seeing more and more calls for people basically saying that this is, this is a bluff and we need to call Russia's bluff on nukes. And it's really easy to say that when you're someone like General Mark Milley, who lives in the United States, uh, you know, and because ultimately you're not you uh, and where you live will not bear the brunt of this. I mean, this is again, this is why it's so insane that people like Mearsheimer are are just shrugged off as Putin apologists. It's like, no, actually, Mearsheimer is 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 the one who's calling for restraint and realism because he understands that any catastrophic escalation of this conflict, you think what's happening in Ukraine is bad right now? What do you think will happen if this escalates into a full-blown war between NATO and Russia? Talk about unimaginable human suffering. I mean, and we're, we're treating it like a game, like it, like this is a game of chicken, right? With a nuclear armed country. It's, it's insane. Uh, it really seems like our elites have either lost their minds or they're just as diabolical as uh, all the people they accuse of, of being just the same. And I, I think going back to this question of uh, what was the purpose of NATO uh, after the fall of the Soviet Union? Um, well, I, I, I think Kosovo, um, Kosovo is, is really important, I think, in this regard, because it marks, I, I would think it marks the beginning of the Clinton doctrine, right, of basically hum, for, for, uh, forced humanitarian interventions. Uh, and I mean, and, and Kosovo is relevant because for Putin, uh, he said that Yugoslavia was like a formative moment for him when, when he kind of understood that, that the West, uh, was going to do whatever it wanted, that it was, in other words, that it was going to violate the sovereignty of other countries, uh, at where it pleased. 
And I think Kosovo is important because it, for a lot of different reasons, all the things that I just stated and the fact that our humanitarian intervention there actually killed hundreds of civilians. We, we bombed the Chinese embassy by accident. The Chinese think we did it on purpose because we hit yeah. it with five precision guided rockets. So the Chinese are a little bit, you know, they're still, they're still angry about that. They, they, they actually cited it recently when, when the commander of, uh, of NATO, Stoltenberg, um, uh, kind of rebuked China for not condemning Russia outright for, for its invasion of Ukraine. China's response was, we don't need lectures on, on the violation of international law because we remember who bombed their embassy in Belgrade. And, and like Serbians are still obviously angry about this, which is why they're rallying to Russia's side. Uh, I mean, we, we don't stop to think about this, about how that, about, basically about how the first real humanitarian intervention to stop war crimes uh, was, was a disaster. And on top of all those other things, the United States oversaw or allowed Saudi Arabia to basically incubate uh, is Islamic extremism in Kosovo. Like this happened under Washington's watch. So Kosovo becomes a hotbed for Wahhabism. And then after the, the Iraq war creates a power vacuum that allows ISIS to, to rise up in power, uh, where does ISIS recruit the most fighters from coming out of Europe? Kosovo. It, it's just insane. It's just this circle of, of failures, of failed interventions, humanitarian and otherwise. And there's never... Uh, a, a moment of reflection. And I think that's why it's so horrifying that we're charging full steam ahead into basically another humanitarian intervention in, in, uh, in Ukraine, which is what I think is really behind the whole, the, the beating of the drum on, on war crimes, which I mean, look, they're, they're, it's probably true that like the Russians have committed atrocities just as has the Ukrainians have been committing atrocities against Russian uh, speaking or sorry, pro-Russian civilians in eastern ukraine since 2014 which you know no one seems to care about that but it's just uh yeah i mean it really just seems like the train is about to fly off the rails here well yeah there's there's no contrition or caution and obviously everyone always fails upwards in the american foreign policy establishment and you know rarely questions anything that, that previously happened and we were pointing out before i mean all the, the prophets who warn about these things they don't just go unheeded they later get i suppose canceled <laughs> whereas the people who have helped to produce the mess yeah. boast about the mess that they've created um but no it is quite dangerous i mean you talked about ta tactical nuclear weapons and obviously we all hope and pray that it doesn't come to this in ukraine but one of the real dangers and i think a few analysts have pointed out that there's been this strange reversal of the strategic calculus of at least the first half of the cold war when russia had massive conventional superiority in europe whereas the united states had of course the the icbm and, and the nuclear uh, superiority um whereas now it's actually quite the opposite i mean if you actually looked at all the different troops in the nato countries and you looked at russia's kind of thinned out armed forces in fact You've got massive conventional superiority of NATO's forces, whereas the Russians do actually have superiority now, both in the overall uh, nuclear arsenal and also in tactical nukes. Um, and, you know, obviously the, the, the fear, I mean, the danger is that is that if Putin does get backed into a corner, um, you know, he might be tempted to use some of these. Um, there's already been talk of these kind of thermobaric weapons. Obviously, a lot of these weapons that have already been used in, in Ukraine are kind of barbaric enough. Um, but as you point out, um, the war could still get worse. Um, I think uh, aside from this kind of failing upwards and failing to listen to profits, I think that the problem Americans have always had when it comes to approaching foreign affairs is they just don't have this tragic sense, you know, this idea that 
um, that both things can go badly, but that they can actually even go worse. Um, yeah. And that you have to be cautious and and it's some level of, of contrition, I think, for for some of the the past debacles and the consequences of our actions and understanding that that you know other people also have longer memories. You're pointing out the Chinese still remember the bombing of their embassy in, in Belgrade. Yeah. You know, the Russians obviously, like Putin mentioned it in great detail in his remarks on the eve of the war. They still remember Kosovo, they still remember Iraq, uh, they remember Libya. Um, you know, they see yeah. what's happening in, in Yemen is, is largely America's work. Uh, yeah. They remember what happened in Afghanistan last year. I mean, that is to right. say, uh, there's this, yeah. this incredible news cycle thing, this this amnesia that sets in almost every few weeks, it seems like, in the American news cycle, whereas other countries are not so, I think, haphazard, amateurish, and um, historically illiterate. Um, they might read history selectively and one-sidedly like Putin does, but they remember the history. Yeah. Um, and I think we, we would be uh, well advised to do the same. Yeah. Yeah. Because ultimately that's, that's what we're talking. Ironically, the people that are being written off as, as fringe, as apologists, as even fifth column. Um, the, the, the point that we're all making is that, uh, th like you said, things can always get worse. And, uh, the, basically the record of, of Washington's foreign policy, uh, over the last few decades has been, uh, an unbroken record of tragedy and failure, uh, which people get promoted for. And it is, it has not made the world a safer place. It's not made Americans safer, importantly. It's made Americans uh, less safe and more hated uh, for things that they're not responsible for. And it's cost uh, countless lives all over the world. And I think that the basic position that people that are, you know, I guess you could say anti-interventionist now is that, um, that we we actually do care for 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 human life and for uh, we want an end to to these wars that actually make everything worse. Uh, but again, it's that is now a fringe position that is somehow anti-American. To to contradict yeah. General Mark Milley is a is to make you an anti-American. Well, it yeah. does seem that way. It's yeah. a sad state of affairs, but I think you're absolutely right. Caution. Well, Christian are always are always warranted and always needed, and we yeah. need as many voices taking that line of, of modesty and, and caution about world affairs as, as we can get. Yeah, Sean, thank you so much. Uh, I really appreciate you coming on, and uh, you you are a very impressive thinker, impressive writer, and I hope to have you back so we can we can do this more often. Uh, I again, I'm I'm very happy to see you publishing in Chronicles because. Uh, very, very few places will uh, entertain these arguments and they, they need to be heard right now. So um, where can people follow you? Uh, do you have like a newsletter or something or? Uh... I'm, I'm not particularly active on social media. Um, my, my literary agent does have a web page. His name is Andrew Lowney and he keeps track of, of all of my books. Um, okay. um, but as far as uh, the books, obviously um, you can buy them in any decent bookstore. Along with Amazon, if you're so inclined, and some of the online brokers, uh, <laughs> but no, I, I I tend to avoid uh, social media for various reasons. Yeah. Okay. Well, then, uh, if you if you enjoyed this, if you enjoyed what Sean has to say, then I I can't recommend his book enough. Although I haven't read it, I've read two reviews of it, uh, but I, I need to get around to it. Stalin's War: A History of World War II, and you can check out his article at Chronicles Magazine. It's called Putin. Russia and Ukraine, historical roots of the tragedy. Thanks so much for listening. We will catch you on the next one.